is uh, something actually rather beautiful about just sitting looking at this space, this room full of all of you. It feels a very full presence of uh, human life and bodies and beings and I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on what it is to contemplate and practice with these bodies that we have. To contemplate the wisdom that they offer us. The support for our practice development that they offer us. We've noted, acknowledged that uh, this field of experience that we call body is pointed to and uh, we are directed towards it by the, the Buddha's teaching to contemplate, to attend to. So this is the first foundation of mindfulness. And really the foundation that continues to underpin what it is to be present, to be awake, to be mindful in the journey of our awakening. We begin by being invited to attend, to observe, to connect with the body, to begin to come closer or allow our experience to be more direct, more immediate than the way we habitually tend to conceive or think about or relate to the body from some degree of distance. There's an invitation to come into the felt experience, the direct sensory phenomena that manifest, that in a sense tell us that there were that we have this that we call body, that this experience of body is arising. And it's always, of course, arising, as we've noted. It's arising right here. It's arising right now. And so in connecting to and attending to this body, we bring ourselves into a more immediate relationship with life. And as we come into this more immediate relationship with life, we we start to notice, we start to feel also what it is that the body expresses, what it represents, what it manifests for us. and In a way that's not so much about the concepts or the ideas of our body, but actually what, what is it to have a body? To be a being as we are that is with that is in, that is accompanied by or accompanying or however we wish to describe it, this that we call body. And one of the fundamental recognitions and contemplations that the Buddha encouraged us to engage in as practitioners, as, as people, as beings who are interested in waking up, who are interested in freedom, is to to contemplate this body as subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death. And it's a very sort of 
familiar formulation for many of us. We, you know, birth, aging, sickness, death. If we've been involved in Dharma practice, we've probably heard it so many times. And sometimes we have a sense of what that means. And other times I think, again, it can just become sort of an idea. I, I recently heard a translation of those terms that was just slightly different. And it resolved a, a question for me that I'd often had since I first heard about, oh yeah, the body subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. And that's, of course, true. But I always thought, why did the Buddha use the words in that order? Birth, aging, sickness, death. The Buddha tends to be quite, in my reading of his teaching, he's very methodical, logical, organized. Not particularly that I am, but so. But I could tell that that's how his mind seemed to work and the teachings he offered. And I thought, but so if this is a progression, surely sickness would be coming before aging? Because I got sick long before I ever got aged. Or I started feeling like, like I, I, you know, I remember having, you know, being ill as a child, and I certainly wasn't aging at that point in the way that the teaching seemed to suggest. And then I, I read a, a translation of the of the word that's traditionally translated as sickness, and it was birth, aging, decay, and death. And it suddenly, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, I get it. It's interesting, isn't it? Just that shift, decay. Okay, that's something I recognize, you know, and I see where it fits in this progression very clearly. And uh, and it has a kind of, a, there's almost a visceral response to it. It's like, ah, oh, just a moment. I remember, I, the, you know, the first part of me that is one of, a tooth that decayed and now is gone. You know, we, we learn about decay as kids. Tooth decay, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. Okay, obviously I didn't brush my teeth well enough. And uh, sometime in my early 20s, I lost that one, I think, while I was traveling in Asia. And uh, and yet seeing, what is it for us to let that in? Just that, that word somehow seemed... Because death will... Okay, death is kind of scary at some level, but it's also like a bit outside of what we can really comprehend. But decay, we get it. Ah, oh. Oh, actually, yeah, that, you know, in a way, aging is is one way we can talk about it. But decay has kind of got a more of a, oh, yeah, okay, this is going to be tricky, isn't it? You know, it's kind of clear from that. And to see what is it to contemplate this, to just sit with how that lands with me, in me. As a contemplation. Because, of course, practice asks us to open to this, to not resist or to struggle with the fact. Because, of course, at some level, we'd rather it didn't happen that way. Or well, I would. You know, be rather, you know, be, I could live with the fact that I had to die if it was going to happen without having to decay on the way. <laughs> it would feel much more comfortable and pleasant and all of that. But it's like, oh, actually, this thing we call death isn't happening at the end somehow. As soon as we start to notice and encounter this truth of decay, whereas oh this is this is small death, this is small bits, and that's exactly what it is, isn't it? The the kind of illness that doesn't get better, sickness you can recover from, decay, it's done. And the fact that we as human beings are subject to this is very central to how we experience ourselves and how we respond and relate 
to our experience. The endeavor to preserve this body from decay and ultimately from death, which is sort of like the culmination of decay. To preserve this body from that is such a powerful driving force in our experience. And it's not to say that that's somehow a bad thing. Of course, it's important that we take care of and we seek to protect and support the sustaining and the well-being of our bodies so far as we can. And yet a lot of what goes on in terms of our reactivity, in terms of the patterns of, of, of craving and aversion that we get caught in, uh, are fueled and driven by the kind of the core survival mechanisms wired into the body that are to do with sustaining, maintaining, continuing and preserving our bodies. I find it sometimes really useful to contemplate and to reflect on what happens when we notice in our experience when there is when there is difficulty, distress, when there is craving or aversion, if we if we feel into the body, what we'll often notice is some degree of tightness, some degree of hardening, some degree of contraction, and that there's a sense of sort of limitation or rigidity that's in that. And the invitation that we're we're offered in terms of practice to, to breathe out, to relax, to as one of my teachers would say, to soften and widen. And I think it's a lovely expression, that sense of, in our practice, learning what it means to soften and widen. And recognizing that as a kind of a conscious response to the habitual tendency to tighten and contract and narrow and rigidify in a way to try and protect ourselves from being impacted, from being impinged upon by that which is uncomfortable or scary to us. And one of the ways we can understand the process uh, is if we contemplate the, the very earliest expressions and arisings of, of life as we understand it, essentially little single cells floating around in the soup of the ocean is kind of somehow how it began. The bit before that's a little mysterious, so I won't try and figure that one out right now. But it seems those are the first things that we would recognize, little, like little cells, little bags of juice. And they've got this little membrane around them, and they're floating in the ocean, and, and when there's some food around, the way they take it in, they kind of just relax and soften and open, and kind of they're permeable and allow the nourishment in which is kind of nice and lovely, but of course at times what's around them is actually toxic or, or unnourishing to them and then they have to tighten and contract and hold themselves very tightly so that stuff doesn't get in. I mean, there was only these little single-celled things to begin with. There's nothing around that's going to eat them yet. So, you know, that's a more complicated process. But this initial cellular phenomena was about expanding to take things in and contracting to stop things getting in. And at some level, we have some, is it 10, 100, billion, lots, just lots is a good word here, lots of those that makes up this body. And sometimes we find that whole pattern of contracting, of tightening going on, and we notice it. And when that's happening, of course, it, it becomes 
a particularly uncomfortable place to inhabit because of that very contraction itself. And so noticing the tendency to tighten, noticing the tendency to contract, and consciously feeling into it. The contraction itself is unpleasant. It feels unpleasant. Our habitual response is to not want to feel it, to not want to inhabit it. But in fact, if we can, if we, as we begin to inhabit it, we then start to, as we become conscious in it, we have some conscious possibilities then for, oh, some invitation towards expansion. And so it requires that willingness to inhabit it first. We can't relax and open without first entering into it. The idea that I can stay away from that unpleasant contracted feeling and get it to relax from a distance... I don't know if you've tried that, but as far as I can tell, it just doesn't work. And so there's this, this kind of way we have to overcome our hesitation, we could say, our fear of entering in to the felt sense of the body, to the places and the ways in which there may be tightness or contraction. And again, just noticing this, oh yeah, this unpleasant aspect that might arise in the felt sense of the body that we if we're not conscious of it we tend to bounce off we tend to have aversion towards it we don't want to go there and so we go somewhere else and where do we go of course not the body so get out of there get out of my body in my head in my thoughts stories and a lot of the lostness that we experience and the becoming it feels entangled or consumed by mental activity is because we, are not, we haven't yet fully learned and developed our capacity, learned both the necessity and developed our capacity to deeply inhabit the somatic, the physical, the embodied experience. Because of its patternings, that in a sense when it tightens, we don't want to be there because it feels like there's really no space. And that's kind of true. But it's not a fixed or a permanent condition unless we absent ourselves from it. In which case it's left unresolved. And so the coming back in, the coming into contact with our experience requires us to travel through the territory of not just aversion but fear. That sense of I don't want to go there. Not just that I don't like it but I don't want to go there. If we don't attend and turn towards those places we hold back from, the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's remarkable how it happens. I find it it interesting sometimes to notice, and maybe it wouldn't be the case here in um, the temperatures we're having at the moment, but doing walking meditation outside in in England where I, I live now, it's not where I grew up but um, often if if it's fortunate enough to be sunny it's not necessarily going to be that warm and so um, they've been having some warm weather recently um, just to say that it's not always the case and I would notice when doing walking meditation that if there was a, a patch of sun of course I'd want to walk in the sun and then while I'm walking the sun moves of course and so the bit that's sunny is no longer sunny because there's clouds or trees and and then I'd find my path getting shorter because it stopped every time it came to the edge of the sunshine. And I was, oh, it's like I don't want to go into that bit where it's a bit cool. 
and lose the pleasure or feel the discomfort of some coolness. And it's like something kind of shrinks. Coming here, I've really noticed how, because of the bugs actually, I don't want to go outside so much. I love it outside. But something in me is scared of those things going... (laughs) And if I don't really take care of that fear, I'll stay inside all day. And to be honest, I'm more miserable if I stay inside all day than if I go outside and get, you know, marauded or hassled by bugs. But I forget that. It's like when I can see how I easily forget that. And it's something that I think for all of us, we can really benefit from paying attention to. If we don't keep turning towards the places where fear arises, our world gets smaller and smaller. And so, feeling what that's like, to notice, oh, that too is an unpleasant experience. In fact, it's quintessentially unpleasant. Fear as an experience is designed to get us to not like it. Unpleasant, Vedana, associated with the body, felt as fear. If we can see that, of course the point of it being so unpleasant is not to avoid feeling it. It's not actually even to avoid the thing that gives rise to it. It's really good at what it does. What it does is it gets our attention and it says pay attention here. But we don't like paying attention to fear because it's unpleasant just as we don't like paying attention to pain. But with fear, and equally with pain, what it's saying is, oh, look and see. Is there something here that needs attention? With regard to fear, it's like sometimes it's appropriate to be cautious. Yeah, indeed. Because, you know, perhaps there are biting creatures that spread diseases or that might really, you know, harm your well-being. And... um, that would invite or suggest in a degree of alertness and caution. And there's a real difference between what happens in the presence of danger when we get caught in fear. We tend to get pulled into thoughts and ideas about what will happen to me if, and what happened to me the last time when I didn't manage to avoid the thing that I'm afraid of, and how bad that was, and how I need to make sure it doesn't happen again. But because it's not actually happening, I need to think about a time and a way that it might happen. And I get lost and drawn and pulled into the future. So that's what kind of what fear does. It's always happening right here. If we can remember with fear that it's happening right here and come into the body and say, oh, what does it feel like right here? As um, Mark Twain observed once, apparently, he said, almost all of the worst experiences in my life never actually happened. But the fear that arises in relationship to the anticipation of that which might happen is deeply painful to us and distressing. And particularly because we can't actually deal with it. Because it's not happening. The thing we're afraid of isn't happening. If we can notice that it is fear which is happening, oh, that we can deal with. We can recognize it's fear. Fear is a response to the anticipation of the unpleasant, the painful, the threatening, the scary. And when we 
notice that if we come into the present, if we're more immediate in our relationship to the response to this patterning, it's like, oh, actually, let me just check and see, is there danger? So caution says, as caution as an expression of a response to this, rather than fear which takes us into the future or into the past and therefore disconnects us, caution is that capacity that says, oh, actually, yeah, it's probably wise to take care when crossing a road. Sometimes people get run over. So I'll really look and see. Or um, I, I remember um, when I was teaching a retreat in Sweden a few years ago, hearing that there was an adder down by the lake. And we don't have snakes in New Zealand. There are no snakes in, that, in this country I grew up in, and very, very few in, in England where I live now. So I don't see them often. And I was kind of fascinated. And I, thought, I want to go and see this, this adder. It's down by the lake. And apparently they're beautiful. Um, and then as I was walking down there, I was just thinking, I wonder where it is. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to feel really silly if I go down to look at the adder and get bitten by a poisonous snake. And it's really interesting how mindful I was. I didn't have to think, shall I pay attention to where I put my foot? No, that sense of caution was like, wow, yeah, really be mindful here. When, we, when we're aware of our vulnerability as human beings, it naturally brings a sense of attentiveness. Whereas fear disconnects us and we become mindless, that sense of caution and respect actually for our well-being, which is appropriate and natural, it, it invites and supports a sense of mindful attentiveness. And of course, when we're doing the walking meditation, um, it's not as if we're expecting to be in any great danger, and that's, you know, I'm glad to say that's the case. But Sometimes even just noticing what it's like when we take our shoes off, if you feel so inclined. And that kind of solid, hard block of material we use basically to stop my feet having to feel very much when they stand on the ground. And therefore, I don't have to think about what I'm, where I'm putting them so I can think about other things. Great things, shoes. I'm so, not, not knocking them. I have several pairs myself. <laughs> Actually, it's funny when I say that because... Uh, friend and teacher Ajahn Suchito is a, a, a senior monastic uh, and is uh, for many years the abbot of monastery in, uh, in England where I've practiced a lot he, he, was, he once came to visit and as a, as a monastic he just probably has his one pair of sandals and he, he came in and he saw that you know I have running shoes and I have sandals and I have walking boots and I have cycling shoes and I have my nice shoes and, then my, and he said he looked at the shoes and he said how many people live here? <laughs> And I, I'd never really been sort of self-conscious about shoes before. <laughs> but um, it was kind of sweet in another way too. And yet it's really interesting to see all of them allow certain things to be done in a very particular way. Um, but the basic function, as I said, it's that thing that, oh, you don't have to feel your feet touching the ground. Or if you do, you don't have to be at risk that anything will be uncomfortable or painful or dangerous to you. So that's great. But as a result, we don't really have to inhabit our feet. We don't really have to live in that contact with the earth. And we kind of get up away from the earth and into our head. And so something about coming back into our bodies is also coming into contact with the earth. And if you're ever having trouble 
feeling into walking meditation, getting a sense, you know, sometimes like, there's not much going on here, you know. Um, people sometimes report that. I invite you to try walking outside without shoes on. Again, we have these floors. They're lovely. They're soft. They're flat. They're smooth. I, I, you know, I like the wood. But part of the way they're designed is so we don't have to feel too much when we put our foot on. It's going to be a consistent, regular, soft, gentle contact. Lovely. No problem with that. But there's an aliveness that comes when we allow ourselves to be in contact with that impingement in the incredibly sensitive organs of our feet. And so when we, when we start to let our body be the sense of field of sensitivity that it is, and rather than that feeling like it's sort of oppressive, because, wow, sometimes it hurts or it gets hot, of course that's challenging, or it gets cold. But it's also, it's actually, it supports me in my practice to become more fully and deeply embodied and grounded and connected. And this is actually something that also allows us to relax, to open more and more fully. At some level, of course, we're not in our body. We, we tend to get moved out of that into the thinking activity of the mind so quickly. And it's, it's impressive how quickly it happens, isn't it? Have you noticed? We can be really present, really mindful, and then we are gone, and sometimes we've gone a long way. The Buddha once observed, and he wasn't given too much to hyperbola, I don't think. Or well, hyperbole is probably the right word. Hyperbole is a geometric shape, isn't it? Sorry, I'm digressing. He wasn't given much to sort of overstating things. And he said once... I can think of no metaphor for the speed with which a thought arises in the mind. It's, and he was good at metaphors. If you read the teachings, he came up with all sorts of remarkable, beautiful metaphors. But there was no, nothing he said he could think of to try and illustrate how quick that is. So that, that movement into the mind is something that is, is gentled, is softened, and I would say is slowed by the degree to which we are embedded in the bodily field. And this is one of the reasons we give so much emphasis to it. It's equally the place in which, of course, we can explore a lot of the way we react to the pleasant and the unpleasant. We notice that as a felt sense in the body most often, as a, a useful way to work with the field of Vedna that we, we were that Narayan was speaking about this morning. It's just nice, like say, so when I notice, oh, there's a sense of unpleasant to notice. Oh, that's what's there. And if aversion is arising to that, to notice, oh, what does that feel like in my body? So it's not just that I'm aware of it consciously or I'm looking at it from some distance, like, oh, that's aversion. But it's, oh, oh this. So that is sort of, it's over there. This, oh, it's this. It's, it's an immediate experience. This is aversion. Oh, and it tends to feel tight or hardening or rigid or f sort of becomes kind of like a sense of brittleness as a felt experience. And once we've tuned in or felt that in the body, then with the body we can also begin to say, oh, well, I can't get my mind to not be aversive to that thing. It just That's its reaction. And this is the nature of it. We don't get to choose those reactions. 
But with the body, we can say, oh, but actually, can I allow this, invite this, support the body to soften? And as we do so, then the mind is supported and invited to begin to soften also. One of the interesting things with our body is that we can't, with our mind, get our mind to be a certain way. Have you tried it? Can I get my mind to be quiet and tell it, be quiet? No, not easily anyway. But if we allow the body to be relatively still, it supports the mind to become quiet. If we invite and we can consciously relax the body with the breath, it allows the mind to become more spacious, receptive, malleable. So paying attention to the body in the body as the felt experience of the body, particularly around those places that we find challenging, but equally in those experiences that we might find lovely or delightful, to see, can I actually allow the experience of what it feels like when the body is calm or the mind feels peaceful? Maybe... That's just for a little while. But we've all, I imagine, at times had those moments where we feel connected or settled and actually just sensing, oh, so how is that in the body? We notice the quality of of well-being that that might evoke. And equally as we're invited to attend to and connect with the moments where it might be unpleasant or painful, Noticing that we can feel equally where it feels ease or well-being. To notice, ah, okay, it's okay. Or it feels actually well. And that's different than grasping or where we get into sort of somehow wanting to repeat it or to figure out how we produced it in order to maintain it. Which again, we move away from the experience into, well, how did I make that happen? And how can I do it again? And it's, oh, but, oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like this. Huh. And so we can receive also what that offers us. And that really gives us the resource to see that the the body as a field of experience that we can learn to inhabit more fully and deeply allows us to hold a lot of our reactivity more skillfully because things happen more slowly in the body. The mind, as I said, moves quickly. Things happen in the body a bit more slowly. And so when we're grounded and when we're tuned in to what's happening in the body, there's a little bit more room to see and track what's happening, to notice the way when we tighten and contract that, oh, the body does something here. The mind might be gone already in the story, but oh, if I come back here, it's like, oh, I can sense what's happening here. And this is workable for us. To see with our body, we learn to bring some kindness to this, to relate to the body with kindliness, with friendliness. And this can be so helpful, so useful. To just be soft, to be kind. We can, again, habitually be quite harsh. Put pressure on, make demands of this body. Have expectations about how it should be. 
when it's actually remarkable that we have this body at all. To imagine what it would be to just be grateful for this. That it breathes. That it moves. That it's doing all the remarkable things it's doing. Just to be the living body that it is. And what that also means is that we need to forgive the body for the fact that at times it causes pain or it causes, it manifests pain. We have that experience that we find not easy within this body. And yet this is the body's way of telling us to pay attention. I was deeply touched and struck by something I learnt when I was uh, first travelling in India and then in Calcutta, which is the, the city where my grandmother, who's Bengali, is, uh, was living, and I'd gone to, to, to visit, well, to meet her. I'd never met her before. And, um, and I also, while I was there, spent some time volunteering in a clinic where there, um, some mostly Western sort of medical people were providing medical care to the poor street dwellers in the slums of Calcutta. And working with some lepers, I discovered something that was profoundly shocking and also insightful, which is that leprosy isn't this horrible disease I'd imagine that makes bits of your body fall off. It's not. It's actually a disease that kills the nerve tissue. And for people who often, and people who are poor, uneducated, and without much medical um, support around them, if they get this disease, they cut themselves or they burn themselves or they injure themselves. They don't know they've really done anything. They don't feel any pain. It gets infected. It rots. It falls off or it's disfigured or, or what happens. It, it's kind of horrible in one sense to say it. And what was so striking to me is to contemplate that this happens because they can't feel pain. And the thing that would make the greatest difference to the life of the sufferer from leprosy in that situation would be that they could feel that pain. Because it's saying, pay attention here. Oh, it's hurting. Oh, go and wash that. It's still hurting. Go and take it to a doctor. Or get some help. And so can we see those experiences that we find difficult, whether physical or in our body or equally in other ways challenging to us the, the mind states and the patterns of reactivity we encounter in our practice that we find uncomfortable or distressing or painful. Could we see them as an invitation to turn towards, to give attention to, to bring care and kindness to bear upon this? Whatever it might be, whether the more no, maybe we could say obvious or straightforward, perhaps is a better word, expressions of pain in the body, which may be to do with posture, which may be to do with injury, to do with illness, to do with aging, to do with decay. Or may also sometimes be to do with patterns of holding and contraction. That as we sit and we begin to feel and we begin to allow ourselves to inhabit may sometimes emerge as uncomfortable but unharmful 
experiences and learning to distinguish what that kind of pain and discomfort might be from those things that are actually saying, actually, it's time to move your posture now or it's time to do something to take care of this particular thing that's happening. And there's no sort of foolproof formula for figuring that out, it seems, but to really be gentle and respectful and err on the side of taking care of our bodies seems to be the wisdom of it. And um, I remember um, reading in one of the... uh, early commentarial texts, this passage, and this was, uh, this was while I was at that time living in, in India, in, in Calcutta, and um, there's a section where this, uh, there's this injunction being given. There's a couple of passages about sort of relating to our bodies, and, and one of them says that actually for the monks and nuns, it's actually a rule that if you're meditating, you're in a really deep meditation, and the building you're in burns down, it's not allowed to stay there. You have to, you have to get out. Because the robe you're wearing doesn't belong to you. <laughs> and you need to preserve that robe because it's not yours. And the implication was that if you're in really deep meditation, you might be quite happy to sit there and just let yourself get burned to death. And it's kind of like, hmm, that's an interesting kind of suggestion. I'm not sure I quite would go with that. And the other, the other model that you sometimes would read and sort of like practicing with, okay, so, you know, maybe your knee hurts. So, okay, so maybe you will really badly injure it by not moving at all. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen if your knee hurts. I've sat with knee pain for many extended periods and mostly, it seems, managed to find the time when that was okay and occasionally got to the point where that was enough and changed the posture. But the impression you get is, well, okay, so you just keep practicing and if, you do that, you'll either you'll get enlightened, in which case it doesn't matter if you've hurt your knee, or you'll die, it'll kill you, and then you'll get born again and you can keep going and it didn't matter. <laughs> and so it's almost like sometimes one gets a sense that there's not a full respecting of actually the, the preciousness and the vulnerability of the body in the way some of the teaching has been articulated. I don't think this was the Buddha's teaching. Actually, this is something that kind of gets overlaid onto it through the, the historical development of a renunciate tradition that um, sort of arose in a, in a culture that had a, a tendency to want to kind of transcend, to move away from embodied life because it's messy and difficult and painful and not in one's own control. So that's, it's not something to judge but to understand and to to see what it is to really bring kindness to our body, to really take care, to cherish this. It's almost like, oh, actually, it's not just the robe. It's not just the robe that's not yours to, um, to, to get burned. It's actually this too. This too. It's not just ours to do with as we will. And we can actually, I think, find a, a remarkable relationship to the body when we start to sense it as something that we're kind of borrowing for a while. It's like we relate to... Have you noticed how when someone lets you borrow something, you kind of treat it 
I'm imagining, you know, with some real care. Um, differently than some, certainly I see myself, if it's my thing, I can sort of, you know, throw it in the corner sometimes, you know, or sort of bash it about a bit. But if it's someone else's, it's like, oh, I really want to take care of that. Or if it's, if it's just something that's borrowed, it's like, oh, I want to give it back in good condition. I want to take care of it. And the sense of this, this bodily life, in that sense that, you know, we didn't birth it. We don't own it, and we're not going to die it. I'm not referring to a relationship to food. I mean, we're not going to... This body will die itself, just as this body birthed itself, it seems, without us needing to be too involved. Although, of course, we seem to come along for the ride. And quite a ride it is. But this sense of... Oh, it's, it's maybe not mine in the way I've imagined it to be. It's not something to be done with for my whim or treated as kind of like an object that I, I kind of use and abuse. And so much of the way we relate to embodied life in our culture can express that kind of objectifying it, making it into something which is for my use, whether it be our bodies and the ways we can use them, whether the, the bodies of others, of creatures, of other human beings, and, and the very body of life, how we relate to that as something that it's sort of like, in a sense, that we have possession of, ownership of, and therefore can do with what we will. And so far as we relate to our body, or the bodies of others, or the, the body of life, in that way, we actually do a great disservice and a great harm to ourselves and to life. And this, the sense of, you know, my body. We're invited to contemplate it as, you know, not self, this body. Now, it doesn't mean it's kind of somebody else's and some kind of, look, would somebody else look after this? I'd sometimes quite like it if somebody else would look after it. Um, but it seems to be up to me. Um, in that sense, but it's like, but not just for me, not just for me. I mean, you know, I'm trusting you know that you're not the only inhabitant, don't you? <laughs> you know how many other inhabitants there are in this organic system, like literally billions. In fact, I mean, there are billions, and I recently read, and I can't remember exactly, was it, I think it might have been 10 sort of like bacteria type bacteria fungus type little 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 fellas ten of those cells in our body for every one cell of human tissue it's like whoa no wonder things don't quite go according to my own personal plans you know i'm in a minority here in fact if it, in fact if it was a democracy i'd be outvoted And that kind of explains what's happening quite a lot of the time. Because the state of mind, we know now, is profoundly affected by what's going on in all the little fellas hanging out in our stomachs. It's like, oh, it's not my mind state, it's theirs. You know, what? wish they'd get it together, do some practice maybe. <laughs> but it somehow softens the whole thing and we hold it in that way. You know, we get to 
it's kind of embarrassing at times. You know, I, I, I remember for years, I, and I still have this ongoing, you know, presence and cohabiting sort of little group of fungi between my toes, basically. It's like, you know, it's like they've been there since I was in my early teens, as far as I can tell. Um, I've tried various ways to limit their expan- expansive or expansion tendencies, and it's kind of like we've kind of come to some agreement about how much territory they have. But it's kind of like it was really interesting for me the point where I understood that actually I'm really embarrassed about that, you know, and how we get embarrassed about it, don't we? It's embarrassing. Oh no, no one's going in a swimming pool with Yanai again, you know. He's got athlete's foot, um, but. They're pretty well restrained, it seems. Um, <laughs> and yet, that embarrassment is that sense of oh, oh, oh yeah, this is a, this is a co-housing project. <laughs> it's not me. It's not mine. And the interesting thing is, of course, those fellas are going to be there when I'm gone. When I stop putting the tea tree oil in there, they're going to say, "Hey, great, we can have the rest of it now." <laughs> <laughs> and. Why shouldn't I celebrate that on their behalf? <laughs> Who knows how much of my mind states are to do with them? Because <coughs> I don't know how much of my mind states are to do with them. I don't think they're quite as influential as the ones on the stomach, but probably no one's done as much research on what grows between our toes. <laughs> and yet again, I find there's a kind of a softening that happens when I reflect on this, when I talk about this. It's like, oh, okay. This is what it is to be a human being. This is what it is to have an organic, living thing, this body. And when, when we feel it that way, when we hold it that way, maybe we can hold it not just more softly, more lightly, but with a sense of the sharedness of it. It's on loan. And there's a gratitude we come for having even this, you know, remarkably imperfect version of a human body and I'm sure you equally as I could list the various ways it could for each of our own body be somehow improved by this or that or upgraded in this or that way and yet oh it's like you know that expression don't look a gift horse in the mouth it's kind of I don't know how close we, many of us, live to the world in which that comes from, but you know, it's to do with the fact that a horse's age can be judged by the length of its teeth. So if you look in its mouth, you're looking to see when someone gives you a horse, how old is this thing? Are you give me an old nag or a, you know, a useful beast. Um, and so that sense of, oh, we have this wisdom. Oh, what is given? It's a gift. What is to be not trying to look and see how good a version of it is this one, but just be grateful that you got one. And that sense of gratitude, I think, for me, also brings with it a sense of, okay, I feel quite naturally more open to sharing. And the relationship that I have with the, the other creatures that inhabit this body is one of, oh, okay, so this is, you know, this is for all of us. What's going on here? Because it is. There's a beautiful story told of Ryo Khan, who was a, a Zen monk, a hermit, and a poet who lived in, in Japan in the, I think it was the 17th, no, 18th, 19th century. Um, 
And he was once observed. He was, he was known for his incredible compassion. He was once observed on a cold winter's morning after the sun had come out to be taking lice out of his robe and placing them on a stone in the sun to warm themselves. He seemed with real tenderness and care. Just placing them there in the sun. Because it was a cold day, but in the sun it was warm. And even more remarkably, at the end of the day, seen picking them up from the stone and putting them back in his robe. And it's like, what did he know? What was it in his heart that he'd understood that might lead him to relate to those creatures in that way? And what might, might we learn about how we could live in this world? I was walking with a friend who uh, was telling me about her remarkable and touching experience of uh, seeing a mountain lion recently. And uh, the sort of the thrill and the (laughs) the slight concern that went with it of, wow, and oh, those things can eat me. And uh, we were reflecting on sort of the fact that we probably wouldn't attempt to, in such a situation, emulate the Buddha who is reputed in one of his previous lives to have offered his body to a, a starving and injured mother tiger to be able to, so she could feed her cubs. But again, the image, and we thought, no, yeah, we probably wouldn't do that. We'd just run. Um, <laughs> but again, just interesting to contemplate. How is it that one might be relating in a situation like that to suggest such a possibility? So we could also ask, I think, usefully of this body, what is this body? What's going on here? There's so many ways we could relate to it. Some ways it's just a hollow tube with some appendages attached. The very earliest forms of complex life going beyond the single-celled ones are just simple tubes. In fact, when we as a, in our very earliest developmental stages as, a, as from, from the, uh, the zygote, the first sort of single cell of the human life, as it forms, it, it, it begins, it forms itself into a little disc. And then the disc, after a circular disc, do it this way, so, and then after a little while it just forms into a, to a circle. The disc curls around and encloses it little tube. And of course in some ways that's the the primary complex structure of life and uh, we're just a tube. We've got some sort of appendages for moving the tube around, getting some food, putting food in the tube, moving quickly in case another tube wants to put us in their tube. (laughs) Sort Sort of something for spotting what we might want to put in our tube, what might want to put us in its tube, and a couple more tubes for making more tubes. <laughs> and, and that's a human being. Leonard Cohen, in one of his later albums before his, 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 his passing a few years ago, he said, and he says, I love to speak to Leonard. He's a poet and a shepherd. 
and he knows that he's just a brief elaboration of a tube. And I thought, surely he said tune. Then I looked, because tune is a musician, a brief elaboration of a tune sounds quite poetic. But no, brief elaboration of a tube. Oh, he gets this. And part of the interesting thing about recognizing that in some ways this system is just a tube, and of course you know it's just a very long tube, it's all coiled up in the middle, is that the bit that's on the inside is also kind of on the outside. Because what's inside that tube, we don't tend to think of that as me, do we? You know, we eat food, it goes into the tube, and the tube goes right onto the inside, and then somehow it becomes this thing we think is me, or mine. But actually, inside the tube, it's, it's actually just kind of connected to the outside of the tube. We can sort of temporarily close the openings, the top and bottom, But if we kind of understand that, oh, it's like this inside of the tube and what's outside of the tube, they're actually interacting. That's the only way this tube sustains itself. It's by keeping on having lots of that which is outside on the inside. And it's a useful contemplation because the way the world appears and the sense of me appears arises as a sense of inside and outside that reflects that kind of primary binary that has a biological basis but that actually isn't ultimately or fundamentally the deepest truth of what's happening. The mind and the world arise together. The sense of inner and outer, this body and me, and the psyche, we could say. And that phenomenal, apparent, external world arise as if, in the appearance, separate. But the teachings of the Dharma point us to the dissolution of that separation the understanding that the the manifestation of what is happening here cannot be ultimately separated according to the appearance of subject, that's me, who's in here, and object, that's everything else, including all of you, out there. That that's something that appears according to the way consciousness works. But it's not the fundamental dharma of this life. It's what appears. And so the Buddha said of this body that this, in this body, this, as the early translations, this fathom-long body, which is the sort of the you know, the Victorian measurement of length that equates approximately to six feet. Or I think you operate in inches, which whatever six times 12 is, 72 inches. Is that that how you measure height? You tend to here? Yes. It's a fathom, 72 inches. That's actually how tall I am. So not while sitting down, but um, six feet. In this fathom-long body, 
the whole of the Dharma is revealed. The arising of the world and the passing of the world too. The Four Noble Truths here of Dukkha and its cause, the path and its end. And the path is articulated and understood as the ending of the arising of the world. The Buddha says that one will not come to the end of Dukkha without coming to the end of the world. And he's not talking about the annihilation of what we call the manifest reality, obviously. But the sense of world arising as separate, as other, as apart from self, me, this over here, disconnected from it. So when we talk about not-self, we're talking about the absence of the solidifying or the reifying of the point of reference from which that appearance emerges, but which is not solid or fixed or permanent or able to be found in any ongoing, consistent location or expression, or form. And so, when we relate to the world as something other, as something out there, or when we relate to other people, or communities, or ecology, or our body as something other, as something out there, we somehow find ourselves using it. For the benefit of self, for the comfort, for the appeasement, for the sort of entertainment of me. And this is a, a great foundation of suffering. To see the end of the separation, to understand the emptiness of locating a sense of self or the impossibility of locating the sense of self within this as having any more validity than locating it within this. To understand what that means is to understand what it means to live in the body of life of which each body is a manifestation an expression. Shantideva said, who's a wonderful teacher and uh, poet and mystic who lived in the 6th century in India, he said, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? When we see life in this way, our relationship to all of it can only be one of care and respect 
and our participation in it comes naturally from knowing that our place in this is deep and profound and unshakable. This knowledge of body, human body, body of life, really invites the heart of our life, its care, the deep care that is intrinsic, inherent within us, it seems to me. But sometimes and easily and often obscured or entangled, invites it to emerge in its fullness, in its its beauty. To fill the vastness of this life. So let's just sit together for a few moments. So may we all in our practice together deepen this embodied awareness, this wakeful inhabiting of embodied life, bringing care and wisdom to bear upon all that lives for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. It's quarter after eight, and please continue with your practice. Thank you for your presence and your attention here. And we'll have the next sitting together at uh, 8.45. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.